Hi, I'm Rowan, and welcome to Mental Health by TalkLink. Today's episode is the third and final episode in a three-part segment with clinical psychologist Rhiannon Thomas. If you haven't already, best you listen to episode one on adolescent suicide and two on psychosis before getting into this one, which will be on bipolar and borderline personality disorders. The purpose of this podcast is to have open chats with these professionals, and it's not designed to be used as individualized therapy. Please take it as general information only and visit the show notes for personalized support if you need it. These podcasts are brought to you by TalkLink, which is an online directory connecting young Australians with the right mental health practitioner. Finally, if you'd like to ask Rhiannon a question, you can do so anonymously at talklink.com.au forward slash podcast. We'll do our best to answer it in a follow-up Q&A session. Okay, let's dive in. Imagine having like such a euphoria and you feel so amazing. Why do you want something to take that away? That's, I think, the trickiest bit about it. You're taking away, they kind of do have a superpower. Rhiannon, could we please talk about bipolar a little bit more? You mentioned some of your patients do suffer from this condition. In the media, it's often projected as a condition uh, highly linked to extremely creative people. There's been some very famous case studies recently where creative artists are said to have been bipolar or are bipolar. Could you maybe talk a little bit more about the creative component of the condition? And also, lithium is often flouted as this incredible drug that basically is a cure-all and a drug with almost no side effects. It's like this amazing silver or lithium bullet to deal with bipolar. Could you maybe talk about your experience with uh, medication of bipolar and how lithium works and uh, how that all sort of ties together? Yeah, I reckon that the trickiest part about bipolar is because they are, because of the nature of it, it does tend to present itself for for people who are already quite high functioning and quite perfectionistic in nature. So my experience had been that actually it's harder for them to believe that they really need to take medication. felt like that was the hardest part that actually when they'd feel fine, they'd be like, Oh, I don't need any more. Imagine having like such a euphoria and you feel so amazing. Like, why would you want to take, like, why do you want something to take that away? You know? And I think, they, like it's that's I think the trickiest bit about it. The you're taking away an experience that actually it, they kind of do have a superpower. Mm, I guess particularly if they're creative, right? So much of that energy and passion can come from that uh, euphoric state, and I guess be channeled. Do you? I mean, do you see that? Like Kanye West, I'm pretty sure Kanye West is in hospital at the moment. But uh, like without his bipolar, we, he might not have necessarily been able to create the kind of raps that he's created. Is he bipolar? I mean, was he diagnosed with bipolar? Yeah, he's got bipolar. I think Britney Spears as well. She's got bipolar. Demi, Demi Lovato has got bipolar. Yeah, right. I'm pretty sure. Apparently Winston Churchill made a significant call in the war. That was because he was actually in the middle of a hypermanic episode. Whoa, really? I mean, that's maybe not such a surprise. Winston Churchill was such a dynamic person and um, I mean, he made some great calls, but he also made some some arguably poor decisions. Do you know in this case if it was the right call or if uh, he may have made the wrong decision? Wrong call. Yeah, right. 
I mean, Winston Churchill was also well known to be an absolute raging alcoholic as well. There's stories of him writing a whole bunch of instructions and giving it to his aides while absolutely, completely drunk and in the morning just trying to reconcile a totally nonsensical set of instructions. So I'm sure that probably didn't help any any either. And wasn't Van Gogh, Vincent Van Gogh, the, the painter, wasn't he bipolar as well? And um, this is quite philosophical now, but maybe he would not have been the artist and would not have produced the sorts of incredible masterpieces that he did had it not been for that. And think about his artwork, you know, you can really see some mania in there. Yeah, and I mean, would you be able to justify taking that away from him? Imagine if he had been able to have been treated by the level of care we have available today and we had the medication available would it have been right to take that creative intensity away from a mind like his? Well, I think that's the, that's where I don't envy anyone who has long-term work with people with bipolar is that it's the balance and we can't strike the balance. And it's kind of similar to what I was saying with psychotic symptoms that if say you were to not medicate somebody who was having sort of those manic experiences, even if they're kind of low threshold, so they're just, and it's a, it's a spectrum, isn't it? So even if you, you kind of notice that say they weren't sleeping as well and they've got all these energizing thoughts and they're just, you know, really elevated and they've got a really great mood. The problem is, is that they're going to come down and it's actually high, high prevalence of suicide for people who have, major depressive episodes after a manic episode so you you kind of can't have one without the other and the depressive episodes are absolutely disabling really disabling because they're they're so depleted like it just comes back to the brain they are so depleted it's like taking like probably isn't taking five ecstasy but in a way it's like say you're just sort of having a huge dose of ecstasy all this MDMA, you feel amazing. You're partying, you got all this energy. You feel really euphoric, kind of like in this um, completely different dimension of mood, you know. You feel so elevated and energised and just so positive. And then, you know, we, what we know with MDMA, the next couple of days you just might just sit in your room crying because there's no more serotonin to produce. Yeah, right. So your brain just totally depleted its entire reserve of serotonin and even if you did things that that, that make you feel happy still not going to produce it because you're depleted in it you know so you just feel really 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 low and helpless and hopeless and yeah so is bipolar a bit of a spectrum is it a little bit like um i don't know maybe autism in that sense where you might just have creative people extremely emotional people that experience more emotional variation than uh, than a normal person? And if that's the case, where do you draw the line? Where do you say, okay, this level of emotionality is is too much or this amount of emotional swing is, is getting dangerous, but at these points it's just giving you extra intensity for creativity and you just have to pay for, for it with the downswing where you just feel a bit blue? Like how do you draw that line? How do you know when it's gone too far and when it's dangerous and when it's a condition and when it's just part of your personality. It's definitely a spectrum, but to speak from a more of a clinical perspective, it, it comes back to impairment of functioning. So kind of essentially you could have fleeting periods of mania and fleeting moments of low mood, but you might not meet criteria 
of bipolar because it's not significantly impairing your social or occupational functioning. However, the minute it does, so for example, the minute you are up all night and you're making all these really weird decisions at work or, you know, the minute you can't get out of bed, you can't make it to work, that's when you'd meet criteria for bipolar. And that's, we're doing it probably in another um, podcast, but there's type one and there's type two and there's all, there's cyclothymia as well, which is actually when you cycle between up and down moves quite regularly. There's also bipolar with rapid cycling, which means you kind of can go from mania one week, depressing the next week, mania the next week, depression the next week. There's also, as you know, probably seasonal affective disorder as well, where your mood is sort of really vulnerable and and, um, dependent on the, the level of sunlight around you. I've also kind of described bipolar as a circadian rhythm disorder. So actually... Um, if you, and there's lots of social rhythms treatments for bipolar because often it's because they're not getting that effective cycle of circadian rhythm. They're not going to bed when they're meant to be going to bed. So they're not getting that sunlight when they're meant to be awake and that, and that kind of thing, which also makes them more vulnerable. So just remind me on this one, your circadian rhythm regulates your sleep. So if you're saying it's a circadian mood disorder, it means you're sleep patterns are effectively starting to impact your mood. Is that is that right? Yeah. And you said something else that I didn't initially connect with bipolar, but after you mentioned it, it really makes sense, and that was when you spoke about guilt. You talked about this guilt cycle that sort of rides on the back of the manic episodes where someone may partake in really risky behavior or behavior completely out of character and Yeah, so Rhiannon, I want to circle back to something that you mentioned earlier. You mentioned guilt associated with the swings that someone might experience with bipolar. It's something I'm not even connected, but when you said it, it really made sense. So you've described the circadian um, mood rhythm, but on top of that, you've kind of got this um, this counter-cyclical guilt rhythm where someone in their state of mania, may have partaken of high risk-taking activity, made some poor decisions, maybe partaken in some sexual activity they would not have otherwise. And when they come back to normality, they've got this immense sense of guilt uh, associated with that. So it's almost like this this other cycle that's out of sync, this guilt cycle that's out of sync that you described that I thought was really, really insightful. It's so complex that it's not linear, you know. It's not like you'll have a manic episode and then straight afterwards you go into a depressive episode. You might have a manic episode and then you might become less heightened where you plateau a bit and function okay again and then you might drop or you might function okay again and then you might go up. It's not sort of a clear cut up and down. And there's also we have a combination of both where you might have low mood, but you might have increased energy at the same time. So you might be one second laughing hysterically and the next bawling your eyes out, which is a sort of mixed episode of bipolar that's sort of becoming increasingly more, um, people are becoming increasingly more aware of that as well. But definitely, I mean, oh, the, the amount of risk and even sort of anger that's present with manic episodes. I think, again, society thinks it's just this wonderful, joyous where you see unicorns and you're really creative and you're really heightened and everything's really amazing. But often, actually, you, you experience increased aggression. You might also have those psychotic episodes where you have these grandiose delusions where you might think that you're a queen. You might think that everybody is below you 
you, you know, you might be coming across as incredibly arrogant and narcissistic when really you're actually in the middle of a manic episode, you know, so. Yeah, Rhiannon, I think my dog may suffer from visions of grandeur where she believes she's a reincarnate version of royalty. Is that possible? I reckon my dog, Nacho, maybe also has some, some grandeur <laughs> <solutions>. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah, but... Anyway, so definitely a really, really fascinating topic. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, Rhiannon, you also mentioned personality disorders. Can you talk to us a little bit about those? How do they differ from bipolar? Are they sort of related in a way or are they totally different? So bipolar is a mood disorder. So it's a disorder of mood, whereas a personality disorder speaks to the pervasiveness of a number of features or, or symptoms that are actually there over a longer period of time. So, which I guess essentially looks like it's a part of your personality. So the way you see the world in general is different as opposed to bipolar. It's dependent on whether you're in the high or the low of the mood disorder. So whilst you might have disruptive mood episodes or you might be really irritable one day, you don't have with a personality disorder, you won't see somebody in a heightened mood state for a prolonged period and then a low mood state for a prolonged period. What you would see with personality disorders is that they might have underlying irritability or underlying difficulty regulating their emotions, but it's kind of from day to day, hour to hour, minute to minute, and normally it needs to be present for at least that 12-month period as opposed to, say, to meet criteria for bipolar, you might have a manic episode that lasts two weeks and then you might meet criteria for a depressive episode that lasts a month. Yeah, I'm almost certain that I worked for someone for almost three years who had a personality disorder. Personality disorders is very, very interesting, especially because a lot of people can have personality disorders and be out there. Again, also a lot of people have traits of personality disorders. You know, I think a lot of us have narcissistic traits. A lot of us have traits of insecurity with feeling like we're vulnerable to abandonment and feeling really clingy. But again, from a clinical perspective, it's about its impairment in functioning. Yeah, I think that was one of the hardest parts for me to make sense of. The fact that she, in some regards, was so highly functional she had a huge team under her. So this was an engineering company. So really sophisticated, technically um, high demand in terms of its role. She had just an enormous budget. And so she, on one level, was so competent. But on another level, she was so utterly dysfunctional that it was just such a weird combination. And it was so tough for us to wrap our head around and make sense of some of her behaviors. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some of the ways that you can treat someone with a personality disorder and what are the standard, I guess, therapeutic approaches to it? It, it depends first and foremost on what type of personality disorder they may have. So probably the one that people are probably most commonly in contact with is a borderline personality disorder. Um, and that's kind of characterised by lots of different features, sort of instability in relationships, very negative self-concept, problems with kind of interpersonal relationships in that they kind of will oscillate between fearing that people will abandon them or and then 
fearing that people will abandon them, but also engaging in behaviours that would otherwise kind of get them to, to not abandon them. And because of the underlying coping style, I guess you could argue, is that people who have borderline can't integrate the good and the bad. People are either all bad when they do something bad or they're all good when they do something good and there's no in-between, there's no grey. So they really, really struggle to understand somebody who's good doing something bad in their eyes. It's a very black and white way of understanding people. So a partner who might, for example, be with somebody who has this kind of personality structure may do something accidentally that might hurt their feelings and they struggle to tolerate that and they are having really, really difficult emotions because of that and can't understand why, why would they do such a horrible thing to them? Because in their eyes, they're good and they've engaged in something that's bad. So they're all bad. And so what they might do, they might engage in these behaviours to really reject them and push them away. And then unfortunately, when they do that, they realise, oh my God, no, they're not not all bad. Maybe they're all good, you know, and I don't want them to abandon, I don't want them to abandon me. I can't tolerate being abandoned. So I'm going to do all these behaviours to try and bring them back because I've just stuffed up because they are actually good after all this time and they're not all bad, you know. And so, you know, part of the criteria for BPD is also difficulties regulating emotions. Um, So we see a lot of people with um, borderline engaging in lots of self-harming behaviours, lots of self-mutilation, risk-taking behaviours, as well as suicidal thoughts and gestures. And they might engage in these behaviours probably at more of an unconscious level because they're trying to get a need met through them. So if they're really worried about somebody abandoning them or leaving them, they might engage in self-harm or outline they're going to hurt or harm themselves to bring people closer to them, which some people might see them as very manipulative. They might see them as very argumentative, aggressive, confusing. And I guess, yeah, difficult to to work with. And I guess the work from a psychological perspective is to actually try and help them integrate their sense of self. All right. So, Rhiannon, I know that we've had several conversations on this that obviously weren't recorded. So maybe for another conversation, you can walk us through this. But it sort of sounds like um, that whole Jungian shadow integration that you've explained to me, where basically the concept is, Good people can do bad things and obviously humans are extremely complex and that we have to kind of integrate this, um, what Jung calls a shadow into our personality to become whole humans. How have I gone in terms of a student? Have I been paying attention? Is that sort of of where we're going? And and just side note for listeners, we'll probably do a whole uh, discussion just on this at some point in the future. Yeah, it it is definitely. And and look, there's lots of different treatment modalities for um borderline personality disorder there's dialectical behavior therapy there's um, mindfulness-based interventions a schema therapy there's lots and lots and lots of interventions and essentially um, what's similar for all of them is, is helping them to work through what are their triggers tolerating distress and also kind of interpersonally understanding the function of what they're doing so why why what why did they cut themselves after they didn't get a phone call back from a friend you know what's that about why what what made them want to hurt themselves and what were they thinking what were they feeling 
oh, they thought that maybe their friend no longer wanted to be their friend. They thought that their friend who they think is a really great person is suddenly this horrible, evil, nasty person who no longer wants to talk to them. And it's about kind of bringing them back into the perspective of, you know, maybe they were just at work. Maybe they were busy and getting them to kind of understand that. Does that make sense, the interpersonal function behind it? Mm. And I guess to put yourself into someone's mind space who does see the world in that way, if you really do believe that someone is bad or evil all the way through, it gives you maybe a level of justification for a fairly aggressive high ground or moral superiority and it I imagine could lead you to be quite cruel or mean because well you're dealing with someone who's bad I mean if you really believe that someone's evil uh, it's a lot easier to be nasty towards someone like Hitler than it is to the lady down the street or your friend who you thought was your friend but's not your friend right so I imagine that kind of gives you some sense of what goes through that sort of lens of the world and uh, doesn't justify, but certainly gives context to some of that behavior that's from the outside appears as really mean and cruel, right? Yeah. So why do people develop personality disorders? Again, it depends on what theory you might work from, but um, essentially speaking, it's, it's an attachment disorder in a way. So the origins of what we see in the research is actually that borderline personality is, is likely, you know, begins in early, early childhood and infancy. And often it's associated with what's called relational trauma. And that is, you know, when there's not enough consistent connection or attunement from a caregiver from as early as the first 12 months of life to up to three years of life when somebody isn't getting a consistent emotional response from a caregiver, that's often where we see they're really highly predisposed to personality disorders. And you can imagine if, you were a, if you're a baby and you're crying and you're crying and you're crying, babies don't have the ability to kind of work out that the mother is returning. So as soon as a, a mother leaves, for example, and leaves a room, a baby has no ability to kind of have any concept of time. So when they're, when they're gone in the baby's eyes, they're actually gone forever. They're never going to see that mother again. Um, and so when they're crying and they're crying and they're crying and that mother doesn't return when they think that they believe, oh, that mother's gone. She's bad. Yeah. Um, if that mother returns to them consistently, they start to learn that I can rely on people. I can trust people. People aren't going to innately abandon me. If their mother, and I'm making, I'm making a stance with mothers. This is also the same with fathers as well. If that mother inconsistently comes. So sometimes when, they, when I cry, mum comes, she's there. Other times she doesn't come. Or sometimes maybe mum hurts me. So in cases of you know, early trauma, for example, if there's that emotional neglect or, or if the, the, the parent is struggling from their own mental illness, for example. So even if the mother comes and they're there, but emotionally they're not there, it's just as, it's just as impactful as if they just didn't come, if that makes sense. So the baby kind of learns is I can't rely on my caregiver. I can't trust them to be there when I call upon them. So they don't learn from the very, very beginning that they don't learn that there's just one mum. They learn there's two mums. One's really bad. One's really good. 
good one comes and feeds me when I need it. The bad one either yells at me or doesn't come. And so they never learn from the kind of, in terms of early personality development, they don't have the early learning building blocks, I guess, of relationships that are that when I call upon somebody, they come to me. They actually learn instead that inevitably, inevitably people will um, abandon me and I have to depend on, depend on myself. So, and when we can kind of see that transgress through their development, they might feel like they have to cry really, really loudly in order for then the good parent to come. So they might engage in behaviours that other people might see as quite high risk and quite concerning because that's the way they're kind of learning to to get some form of response from people. People are only going to care about me if I'm crying really loudly or I'm cutting myself or I'm saying that I want to kill myself or that I'm engaging in all these big, big behaviours. And because of that lack of integration between this is, and this is probably more of a psychodynamic explanation, an attachment explanation of borderline personality disorder, is that, you know, obviously when they're there, they're so scared of being abandoned um, and they're so scared of the bad parent coming in that they want to cling as much as they can to the good parent when essentially they're actually the same parent. Whoa. Okay. Well, I think that's very well explained and it certainly makes sense as a as a concept um i guess that brings me back to the other question of how do you treat someone with that condition well again there's lots of different treatments for borderline personality disorder sometimes what we see is a lot of adolescents look like they have bpd because a lot of them are irritable they engage in risk-taking behaviors they struggle with their emotions they struggle interpersonally just in general what is really i think positive about BPD is that often it kind of ages out we do see that you know it might peak around that early adulthood but then when it when they start to get more stable relationships you start to see the severity I guess or the intensity of the symptoms diminish quite dramatically there's interpersonal processing as part of the treatment that's really important there's um, helping them deal with distress there's mentalization based therapies which I mentioned before and I guess anything really that kind of helps them and, and be, I guess help them see with you as a clinician that you're essentially an integrated person and you model for them that there's clear boundaries that you get them, I guess, to tolerate and um, experience, you know, rupture with repair, sorry, with ruptures, all of those kinds of elements to treatment over a long period of time, I guess, is, is going to be some really core features of treatment for for BPD obviously safety planning can be a part of it especially if there's that sort of self-harm and suicidal ideation you know crisis management plans can be really effective so that really essentially everybody in their world attends to them in a consistent way and I think that's sort of the the bottom line that they really need they need predictability they need stability because really the reason they've developed borderline in the first place is because of the inconsistency that they've experienced. And they might really kind of push for that because it's familiar. They might push people to cross boundaries. Um, and, and I think being really firm and being really boundaried and being really consistent helps with the integration of the bad and the good. 
Do you have an example maybe of what you mean by pushing boundaries? Are we talking about um, are we talking about taking things or doing things or risk-taking behavior? What does it mean to push a boundary in this context? An example might be um, don't tell my parents but I have stockpiled all this medication. I'm not going to do anything with it but don't tell my parents um, that I've stockpiled all this medication and the test might be to actually see can I rely on you, can I trust you to not to not tell them really. So it's kind of like a bit of a test and as you know, if we had any concerns about risk, that's criteria to then to then obviously tell parents or tell families about that, right? And I think the challenge would be for somebody with BPD is that if you tell my parents, then you're breaching my trust and you're going to be bad. And so they might say, I know, I know you're meant to tell my parents, but I want you to not tell my parents. You know, I want you to do something special for me, you know, prove to me that you're all good in my eyes. You know, I want, I, I want to idolize you, you know? And so modeling, you'd be modeling to them about an integrated sense of self of, of actually saying, well, actually, sorry, I am going to tell your parents. And when you do it, they might say, well, I don't want to see you anymore. Um, you're not helpful and, you know, I can't trust you. And they might have a very, very strong kind of negative emotional response towards you that might not equate to what you've done. You know, you might be thinking, hang on a second, I've told your parents because I want to keep you safe. But in their eyes, you've done this huge horrible thing towards them but actually because you stuck with your boundary you're actually providing them with the consistency that perhaps they've never experienced before and they're kind of um retaliating against that and and trying to control you to meet a need that they kind of used to getting met yeah okay that makes sense so they're really pushing pushing and testing to see how you'll respond um given uh given a different situation or changing landscape of things that's going to happen. So actually, it sounds like it's quite similar to any developing young child who's going to test if no means no or if yes is yes. Is that is that correct? Yeah, I, I think it's more what you end up experiencing interpersonally. So it's really hard to ex- explain without kind of bringing in, you know, counter-transference and transference where regardless of what, background you work in even as a cognitive behavioral therapist you'd still be like oh you know I you know this this feeling of wanting to maybe reject them and this feeling of not wanting to work with them and because they they kind of provoke in you an experience of wanting to be rejected does that make sense and so you really need to understand that and I think that needs to be a core part of that of the treatment as well so when when they might become quite irritated at you or they might have a lot more hostility towards you it's about recognizing your internal response and thinking what are you trying to get from me you're wanting me to reject you because when you feel big emotions it's normally around when people reject you so and I guess understanding that you know they kind of are engaging in these patterns of relating to kind of protect themselves because I guess it's less painful for somebody with BPD to reject somebody than obviously like somebody and then be rejected. So they engage in these kinds of ways of relating that are probably quite unconscious, 
that then evoke this kind of natural reaction, which is the opposite of what they're wanting. You know, they're wanting to seek proximity and connection through you, but actually what they do through their behaviour is actually evoke the, the opposite reaction. So they're very, it's very difficult to kind of work with, very difficult to work with. Yeah, it does sound very difficult to work with. And just from conversations I've had with clinical psychologists, it seems to be a theme from the profession. Many of them do find it extremely challenging to, um, to manage and to offer support to, and just a complex overall condition and, and strategy that you need to approach. I want to ask you the same question that I asked you about bipolar, which is, is there a spectrum of borderline personality disorders? And is it possible for someone to have just an element of BPD in their, in their outlook in life? Or is it all or nothing? Do you either have it or not? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think, I think so, you know, we just have to be careful with the language. So a lot of people, like I said earlier, have traits of lots of different personality disorders. Um, and it's obviously a very difficult fine line around what makes it a disorder and then what makes it more just the personality traits. Um, and I guess it sort of talks about more around the impairment, like I said, of their, of their ability to function. So, um, you know, whether their self-mutilation gets to a point where it's causing terrible harm towards them or whether they're going in and out of hospital all the time. They're kind of more the, the cases that I would see or, you know, whether they, you know, in their relationships, they just can't have a stable relationship because they're constantly breaking up with people or they're constantly being broken up with. So they're just in this despair. And Oh, it sounds like such a horrible place to be. I almost feel like we need to do a full session just on personality disorders, of which borderline is, of course, just one. And I really want to unpack it more and, and get more specific insights into the other components of it. Do you think we could do that? I think we should, we should definitely discuss it and, and um, unpack it more. All right, Rhiannon, I have kept you way longer than what you originally offered. So thank you for being so incredibly generous with your time. Thank you for sharing your profound insight and experience. You've really seen some very interesting things. And uh, also thank you for agreeing to come back and continue the conversation and, and pick up on uh, personality disorders. But for now, Rhiannon, thank you. Enjoy the rest of your day. And we look forward to speaking with you very soon. Yeah, anytime. And, um, you know, some a privilege. So thank you. Well, that's it for today. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review and comment. We read every single comment and it gives us a huge boost to keep going. It's also the best way to promote these conversations and make this podcast more discoverable on all the podcasting services. Thank you so much and see you again soon.